0: I want to tell you about one of our partners, Quetzal Education Consulting. Quetzal Education Consulting is a queer, black, and indigenous women-owned firm offering anti-racist consulting, PD coaching, keynotes, workshops, and more. Their newly released abolitionist teaching workshop series coaches and prepares teachers to further develop abolitionist practices in the classroom. Find out why they have been called The Future of Educational Justice by Dr. Bettina Love. You can book a free consultation with Quetzal by calling 510-397-8011 or visiting QuetzalEC.com. That is Q-U-E-T-Z-A-L-E-C.com and if you mention you heard about them through Two Dope Teachers, you will receive a five percent discount on their abolitionist teaching pd series once again you can book them by visiting quetzalec.com on their connect with us page
1: My mentor at school tells me I have to keep on saying this. I also got to tell you, I am your critical conscience. I'm your philosopher king. I'm here to uh, encourage you to engage in illiteracy for uh, ill-intended purposes so that we can have some ill-conceived ideas to habitually disrupt the things we're trying to do. Um, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, this is po- one of three podcasts we have under Two Dope Productions. The flagship, of course, with my guy, Kevin Adams, Two Dope Teachers, and a mic. We have a fire interview dropping with Monica Washington coming up soon. Um, and so you want to catch that. You also want to catch the exit interview with Dr. Asia Lyons, where she brings her research uh, to discuss how black educators are forced out of our education systems and uh, how they endure racial battle fatigue. But most importantly, how are they recreating once they have left these systems? So really beautiful stuff. You can also follow us at Two Dope Teachers on Instagram, Twitter and on Facebook. You can email us with show ideas or gift cards, whatever you want to do um, at Teachers at Gmail. And if you are so excited, so excited about black and brown created grassroots media that you want to give us money, go to patreon.com slash two dope teachers, where for $15 a month, you get the dopest sticker done by young artist sham out of the 303 city of Denver folks. Um, I'm so excited right now. Like, I'm so excited. And I feel like we just had a podcast episode before we even started this conversation. But I want to introduce to you somebody whose work you need to be following on social media. This is an incredible scholar, uh, a wonderful person who is just bringing fire. And, um, and I got to tell you, your your posts have me rethinking stuff all the time. Like, I'm like, what? Oh, all right, I guess I need to I, I need to interrogate that practice with that assumption that I'm making. But folks, I want you to introduce you to my friend. Are we friends? We're friends. Can I say that?
2: Yes. Yeah. Okay, no.
1: <laughs> I'm going to introduce you to my friend, Maribel Gonzalez. Maribel is the owner of the amazing Instagram account, Decolonize Instruction. And as we go through this conversation today, um, she will also tell you a little bit about the work that she's doing, and um, and how you can learn from it and stuff. Adi how are you?
2: I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me and for reaching out. And I'm so excited to be your friend because I'm also just I admire you and your work and your passion and your vision. And this podcast is amazing.
1: Thank you. Oh, that, uh, thank you. Oh, wow, I was not expecting. Thank you. Um, <laughs> it, it's great. Um, and just full disclosure, we're both battling colds. Um, and um, we're gonna we're gonna do our best, and we're gonna. Have a great conversation, and we hope that you enjoy it. So, um, so somebody, you know one of the things that I get really interested in is when I meet folks who are working in education, Black and Brown folks who are working in education, um, because oftentimes we're by ourselves. And so, my first question is always like, "Yo, how do you get here? How did you get here? Why are you a teacher? What like what is it, or what brought you into ed- education?" So, a couple of things I'd like uh, you to share with the audience, like. What has been your path um, to into education and how your identity has been um, a part of that?
2: Yes, um, so I that totally resonates. I felt alone in my school building. Um, so I'm from San Antonio, Texas. I currently live in Seattle um, or on occupied land. I taught in Texas in Harlandale district. Um, and I became a teacher because I really wanted to bring awareness around systems of oppression to young kids uh, to talk about race and racism. So when I went through school, um, so I lived in homogeneously brown communities my whole life and I taught in homogenously brown communities. But there's so much different experiences within the Latina communities. Yeah. So being a daughter of Mexican immigrants is different than being like a fourth, fifth gen Tejana, right? That's right. And it's very different. Like, people are proud. They know every, they know the west side of San Antonio. They know the south side of San Antonio. And I'm exploring this and learning it alongside my family. Um, so I experienced a lot of xenophobia. I experienced a lot of colorism. And just, you know, when I went into high school, I went to a magnet school and experienced racism. Explicit racism, actually, for the first time. Not just institutionally, but yeah. through relationships. So I graduated from high school. Totally insecure like totally wanting to be white, right? Like wishing I had blonde hair and blue eyes and uh, anti-black, like all the internalized racism, all the things. And so when I went to college and was introduced to, you know, the Chicana movement, I was introduced to the concept of racism and and oppression and really went into it. (laughs) And so then I became an activist. And so I Selfless Workers Union, which I attribute to um, a lot of my development is, um, yeah. as a youth leader. I remember um, they just invited me in and, cl- and allowed me to collaborate with them around environmental justice and immigration justice. And they asked me to lead a workshop, you know? And so I was like, whoa. Y'all, my, y'all
1: don't see this, but Marty's face is like, oh my gosh, you wow. want me to run a workshop? What?
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so, exactly. So I, um that was transformative, right? You really believe in me. So not only did I have a name for what I was experiencing, but I actually felt I was capable and I had mentors and people who had similar experiences than me. Um, So I decided that I wanted to bring that to the classroom. And so when I got to school and I got to the building, um, you know, I was like, I'm excited. We're going to, you know, I was English language arts. And so Mm. using literacy as a vehicle.
1: The world of books. Exactly. so
2: much possibility right or so I thought right
1: that's right you were in Texas
2: (laughs) right so I get there and there's actually a lot of barriers and a lot of limitations to what I can do and not just the standards themselves but the culture of the school just the hierarchy being a new teacher I had to defer to my veteran teachers who recycled those tried and true workshops they taught to the test Right, this is like this was eighth grade English language art. They needed to pass this test in order to go on to high school, so lots of barriers. I cried a lot during my first year, right? But not only did I see yeah. not a mention of social justice topics, yeah. um, and of course, I felt entirely alone, but I started to see just how oppressive, um, protocols are, assessments, pedagogy, yeah, you know, these things that are aligned to values and we take for granted by not really reflecting on what choices we're making and the impact of those choices so at the same time that i was teaching i just so happened to have been the face of the defend dignity poster and i say just so happened because it's one of those beautiful serendipitous moments yeah my best friend photographer aline mejorado and I ended up working with Amplifier, and I co-founded the Education Amplifier program, where then I supported the creation of curriculum to accompany these amazing artworks that would then be distributed so to classrooms across the country. Yeah.
1: Now, and to so, put a to put it in context, so your your image is one of them. Linda Sarsour is another one, right? Is is Linda Sarsour one of the
2: no
1: Oh, okay, maybe I'm getting it's this not. confused. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, but it is this attempt to really represent all of us, um, that make up this um this occupied nation right um right
2: yeah so we the people um was in response to um the uh the 2016 election right and there was a lot of hate um towards communities of color so the defend dignity wasn't intended to be like so awesome it's you know the latina people right have a lot of resiliency and there's a lot of dignity within our communities and we are worthy um and so I was able to use, be able to like work with these schools across the country. And I realized that there are so many of us, actually, like there's so many social justice educators, educators that are interested in this, but we're sprinkled around all over depending on, you know, which state you're in and so forth. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so from there, I realized that my passion was to really look at instructional decisions So there's a lot of incredible work that people are doing to diversify libraries, right? To make sure that there are black and brown authors with black and brown protagonists represented in those libraries. There's incredible work. And so my passion is that, but it's more looking at if I'm going to choose a protocol or a classroom procedure, how is it in alignment with my values, right? And our, my particular values are on land back, indigenous sovereignty, liberation. And so if I'm asking students to come into the classroom quietly, pick out their journal, you know, the spell ringer, respond to a prompt, then Classic, you know, classical
1: how... music playing in the background, right? Like children in uniforms, if possible.
2: <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> right. quiet, right? <clears throat> Then I'm participating in white supremacy culture, right? So what does it look like when these procedures are decolonized? Yeah. Um, and so with my work with Amplifier, it actually brought me to Seattle, um, because I became an instructional coach for equity. So, um, with my, like, wide experience in the classroom and in the nonprofit spaces, um, I found this incredible job being an instructional coach for project-based learning. So then I now have this expertise of project-based learning as a tool for racial justice in schools. Um, and so then I worked within schools to to organize teachers to help teachers use this approach, which is more student driven and, and more um, real life centered. Um, and so now currently I am director of assessment instruction curriculum. Assessment instruction curriculum with Southern Stories, which is which is a nonprofit. It's an arts-based organization in Seattle. And so they do lots of film and theater work in schools and after school using project-based learning as an approach. And then I'm also um, director of the Center for Intergenerational Learning with OGISTA, which is Seneca for Embers of the Fire, based in Ithaca, New York. And I collaborate with Indigenous elders and knowledge carriers and P-12 teachers to bring those Indigenous teachings explicitly in the classroom. So we look at nationing teachings and um, around um Country as well yeah
1: so this is the jobs that i want <laughs> for real so can you say um the first organization again i think you cut out and i want to make sure that um make sure the listeners know uh so the director f- for this what was the other other organization
2: called south end stories
1: south end stories south end stories good it sounded like sound like something else coming through and I just want to make sure we get it right. So I want to ask a, a follow-up especially. So you said something that I think is really powerful when it comes to how you entered the classroom. And man, so so many things that you said like just mirror like what I experienced, which is a little discouraging because I know we're not in the same generation and yet these things continue to repeat themselves. So whether you started going to college in the '70s or the '90s or the 2000s or the 2010s, it's that same cycle of cultural dismemberment that happens, where you are sent the message that you are not enough. In order to be enough, you need to be able to ape the the actions and the behaviors of your white counterparts, right? And this isn't even to make a value judgment that that whiteness is categorically good or bad when it's pre, pre, when it's presented. To um, to young people of color, as you need to be this and not this, there's a value judgment kind of embedded there. You, you talked about um, how curriculum is aligned to values, and I just I I don't want to let that statement go without folks really focusing on it. As you know, our stories of Black and Brown people are under attack in a lot of different places, notably in the state that you began your teaching career in Texas. Um, when we start talking about these divisive concepts, right, um, that are showing up um, in legislation and that kind of thing, what comes to mind for you as there are these attempts to literally legislate us out of existence?
2: Um, What comes to mind is that this work continues and there are this, this is a different evolution of the same work that our own ancestors have been doing
1: in this country and oh. beyond. <laughs> oh my goodness, I feel like this question has been asked you before, um, <laughs> but I think that I think that's so important. That's okay. So I'm working on a fellowship right now that's working to kind of counter some of this misinformation and some of this hate, and that is such a powerful reminder that we don't have to do anything new. It's. It's a continuation of the work we've always been doing. Um, Wow. Okay. Well, that's, that's encouraging. I'm ready to run through a wall. Um, You started to kind of get into this decolonizing mindset. I think we've talked a little bit about it, but for me, the thing that brought me to your work initially was this social media account, decolonize instruction, because I'm like, okay, that's what I want to be a part. Like I want to learn from this. So, Talk a little bit about decolonizing and what the work is that you're hoping to accomplish through um, the social media platforms.
2: Um, so there's a lot of opinion about what decolonize means and there's facts and there's also real, live, real lived experience. Um, and I just want to preface by saying that all of it, I want to hold the truth and valid um, and I'm open to feedback, you know, I'm I'm really not saying anything new, right? But I am, um, I've learned from elders, I've learned from knowledge carriers, I've learned from veteran teachers, my friends, my community, my family. So I feel like I'm not saying anything new, I'm just, um, I'm passionate about what I'm talking about. So I just want to yeah. give credit to the ones before me. Awesome. Um, but decolonizing is really undoing settler colonialism. And so I know that we can't decolonize institutions unless they're completely destroyed. And we're, we're talking about decolonization as land back, re um, and indigenous sovereignty uh, movements. Um, and so if you're not engaging in like real sovereignty or government-run indigenous then you're not decolonizing is what I'm learning. But I actually would argue that we can decolonize instruction and what happens when you shift mind and heart of hundreds if not thousands of students like how could how that could topple institutions and topple government and so I'm not asking to decolonize institutions but what is in our realm of control right so um, there's also this term called indigenizing so decolonize is the undoing right and indigenizing is bringing in those values into practice Mm. Um, I've also heard people say that indigenizing can't happen if you're not indigenous but I would argue that, and again, I don't identify as a scholar. I'm actually a practitioner, right? So the, those are very different, right? There are, there are scholars that I absolutely learn from, and they do the incredible, valuable work of research. Yeah. Um, but what I mean by indigenizing as the antithesis to white supremacy culture is there's a certain brand of whiteness that we all have to subscribe to, even white folks. So there are like just one particular brand of whiteness. Yeah. And what indigenizing is, is saying that you can be your most authentic self. So we're not asking you to be indigenous. We're not asking you to adopt indigenous right. ritual and practice. Yeah. The thing is, like, these protocols that are indigenous create space for you to be your whole self without those filters of white supremacy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, um. so yeah, I, I appreciate what you said about there being a lot of different ways to sort of engage in this work and to conceptualize uh decolonization i heard also someone um say that decolonization is also the the return to self right so there are these harmful institutions that were put in place that we didn't put into place um that that alienate us from from who we are and um so but i i i think that taking this kind of direct tack is extremely important. Um, We're gonna take a real quick break. um, And on the other side, we're gonna learn about how this decolonizing work actually looks in real life and um, how it is done on the ground. So stay with us here on Habitually Disruptive. Yo, what's up people? Um, We're back. Mari's here, I'm here. We're talking about decolonization. We're talking about returning to self. We're talking about uh, undoing settler colonialism, some really dope stuff. If you're a strange person that starts podcasts in the middle, go back to the beginning and listen to what was already said because you won't understand any of this next stuff. Um, So Mari, uh, one of the things you made reference to early on in the conversation and one of the things that you um, are are spending a lot of time talking and presenting on is arts integration, project-based learning as vehicles for social justice and social change. Let's take those things um, as as they kind of come to you. How how do do those things empower our communities and especially the youth to engage in real social change work?
2: Well, project-based learning is indigenous. It's experiential learning. And so with Indigenous learning, it's coming to know things through that experience and through that coming to find out versus being told and then being regurgitated and having to regurgitate that information back. So if we look at the differences between traditional education, which there are some goodies in there, right? Sure. We're not going to knock everything that we've learned in our pre-service or right. our education around teaching. Yeah. Um, but project-based learning really is student driven versus student centered, which there are differences, right? Where students are managing and driving their own learning through a question called the driving question that's really interesting and engaging and relevant to is what Decolonizing instruction is really talking about in its application, which is the human connection, right? So the arts integration, the ability to be creative, express yourself through the arts, but also through the student-driven approach to learning. Um, And so that does mean that teachers have to reduce the number of standards that they're covering Mm -hmm. because there's more focus on student Exploration. There's more focus on reflection, which is a decolonial act. There's more of a focus on revision, prototyping, presenting to the community, versus having assessments that are multiple choice and just live in a computer and are never really like applied or shared.
1: Yeah. So, um, when you talked about driving questions, and and um, we froze for a second as we did that, but I think I think it caught up. So, what's an example of a driving question that is in the spirit of of so of project based learning arts integration for um, social justice?
2: Yay! Um, I'm like, I know the answer to that because I I know you do all the time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know you do. I have to prepare.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, um, one of my favorite, like, real life uh, driving questions from. Uh, Washington Middle School in Seattle was what well, will destroy Seattle. Um, so it's Ooh. provocative.
1: Ooh, I love that. Yeah,
2: it could be a landslide. It could be an earthquake. You know, um, so it's it around could financing. be
1: the unattainability of housing. My my sister and my dad live in the Seattle area, so they hear a lot of. Could be traffic, right?
2: Exactly, and so there's a lot of opportunity. It's open ended, um, and the answer to that question could be a mural. And so I always give this example because um, especially in historically rigid content areas like science and math, right, like a mural. But if you think of the construction of a mural, the design, the community scan, right? Maybe surveying the community to see what issues they want represented in this mural. The connection to an artist, a muralist, to help them design and then implement this mural in the community. Uh, maybe it's an exhibition, so it's a mural and, you know, something that accompanies it that really demonstrates their learning. Yeah. Um, and so it's this beautiful, comprehensive way of learning, right, that does that arts integration and they're working on literacy. It's math. If you look at collecting data, surveying the community, developing and crafting questions, um, research, right, and then this beautiful way to express ourselves using art. Yeah. Um, And so when I think about decolonizing, I think uh, we need to stop compartmentalizing not only ourselves as human beings, but education, discipline. So interdisciplinary work is revolutionary. And I just want to give a big shout out to Lorena Herman, Textured Teaching, um, who talks about this in her culturally sustaining um, pedagogy framework. Interdisciplinary is revolutionary.
1: Yeah that's so my introduction to teaching was in a project-based uh school and so we we did a lot of that but i think one of the things that was really missing from the way that we did it was that it was kind of colorblind project-based learning which essentially which essentially like students could address issues of social justice but it wasn't built in that what we're doing is looking at the community and looking at our lives and ways to intentionally address challenges that we've seen in our lives. And it was kind of hit or miss. Some students really got into that. Others didn't find their way into those social justice questions. And I think as you there's so many like things that you're saying that are making me just smack myself in the head. I'm like, well, of course, this is indigenous experience. Of course, this is an indigenizing pedagogy because essentially it celebrates the fact that the best source of learning for a young person is the young person themselves, right? That they carry with them experiences. They have ancestors. They have family members and communities that are actually the greatest source of um of of learning and um, and growth. And then the other thing that I kind of think about is you mentioned the research piece. Did you find in your experience doing this kinds of kind of PBL um, arts, arts integrated uh, social justice work that students would often be more ambitious and really challenge themselves more than they would have in kind of a traditional classroom? That was my experience that kids are taking books off the shelf. And I'm, and I'm like seeing their Lexile score saying, oh man, you're not going to, you're going to struggle to read that book. But at the same time, I'm like, but you want to read that book. And yo, I'm going to help you through it. Even if you get through five pages of it and you learn something like, I'm going to help you through that. So was, is that a similar experience that you've seen?
2: That's exactly right. Um, and I think that the key here is that they're really excited and engaged with yeah. the work that they're doing. Um, and so that's the whole point, right? Is getting that feedback, that co-creation. There's this activity I like to do with kids where I give them like seven driving questions with some, a little bit of context there. One of them is super silly, but they end up <laughs> figuring out what their product is or what you know performance assessment they'll be working on. And then they get to yeah. vote on which question they end up working on. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the challenges of project-based learning is that especially if you introduce PBL later in their educational careers, high school, you know, so forth, um, that they're really accustomed to being done, like just turning in the work and not wanting that to part. Like, do anything Oh, that, it.
1: Part. that part. Oh, man. Because we've indoctrinated them to the point that they just see education as transactional. You give me this, I give it back to you, and then you put a number in the grade book and I'm done. Like I can just move on. Mister, can I just do the work? Can I just turn in a worksheet? That kind of thing. That is so He's important. It. And, it, and it just like dovetails so perfectly with what you hear kids telling you all the time, which is that, yeah, man, kindergarten, first grade, that was so much fun. And then over the years, school gets ju- just gets less and less fun. And they've been telling us this for years, and we don't listen because we we forget that fun is important and engagement is important. I've always, this has been my like theory, and I get shouted down in most rooms that I say it in. <laughs> but I really think that if we want students to become lifelong readers, then we need to really engage them in reading and really help them to see that there are beautiful stories out there that they'll relate to and that they can produce these beautiful stories, um, that they can come from their communities. So, um, man, I wish you had been there when I was a new teacher because I was like by myself and I have anybody to like get my back when I was kind of like, yeah, but the kids don't like this. It's not relevant to them, (laughs) you know? Um, so that's that's amazing work that you've been doing. Um, and now this is something you're doing on a more national level um, as opposed to in one specific space. How's that been?
2: Um, so it's interesting because I always told myself um, that I wouldn't um, do my work like a one and done. That's like, it just wasn't aligned with my values. I just wanted to stay within one community and really support. Mm. Um, and so that's my work with South End Stories as I'm staying in the Seattle area. And then I'm also building and really building the ground up with amazing teachers in Ithaca and surrounding area of New York. Um, And then I do get to, um, you know, facilitate workshops around PBL with PBL Works. So that is a little bit more, um, you know, I'm one one player of the whole team. um, But these teachers get full comprehensive support the whole school year. Um, and so I just really believe in just staying within the community and being part of that row. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: but absolutely, it's been, uh, there's been a lot of challenges, but the, the curiosity and the excitement and the, those community reveals that happen at the end of a project cycle or even seeing just the growth from students from the beginning to the end of a project cycle makes everything so worth it, right? They're yeah. so excited and proud. Yeah. And they're talking to each other more. It's, it's you're doing all the things, identity work, foundational collaboration, community, all the things that are so important to be human beings. It's happening right there in front of you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. OK, so when I left teaching, so I, I just stopped teaching in, um, you know, at the end of last school year and people asked me, do you miss it? And I'm like, yeah, I don't really miss it enough to go back. Like, I, my, it, it's hard, and I'm doing other things, et cetera, et cetera. Down. This is the first conversation where I'm like, dang, maybe I miss it enough to go back. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not going back. I, I, I can't. Um, but it's, um, but it's so inspiring because it does take me back into those moments where, and it's not even only with my students. Like when I've seen students. Doing authentic uh, project based learning. Uh, My friend Zainab, who is at, um, who did a bunch of work at Escuela Verde in Milwaukee, uh, which is this vegetarian, um, community based, student centered, teacher powered school, exactly the same thing that you're describing that they, the students attack this work with a kind of vigor and enthusiasm that's just like contagious, and the whole community gets into it. So, Um, So I want to move to the next question before you convince me to go back to the classroom because I'm not doing that. Um, Mari, one of my favorite things about um, talking to people is just to learn about the stuff that they're really into, right? The stuff that, you know, sometimes it's serious, sometimes it's goofy, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's it's whatever. Um, Because I think we all have these little lists of things that we really, really like. Uh, folks, you may remember a conversation where I named off my top five pens um, and Muji is still number one. Muji is still the goat of pens. These are the greatest pens ever. Um, yeah. So I, I love the Muji's. It's wonderful. Um, Madi, we talked a little bit. Do you have a top five? Anything? And what is it?
2: So this is hilarious because I thought about this for two seconds.
1: (laughs) It took you no time. It was, I was like, are you ready for this? Do you think, is this too much? Like we can end it out some other way. You're like, no, I got one.
2: (laughs) What is it? And it's protocol.
1: (laughs) Yes. Oh my gosh. Yo, facilitators. If you've been listening passively while washing the dishes or folding the laundry, go get a notebook right now because you are about to learn some dope protocols from a protocol guru so here we go all
2: right so my top five protocols the first one is the chalk talk
1: I love chalk talk ah, tell me why you love chalk talk,
2: chalk talk. Um, it helps people move around the room so you have anchor chart papers and you post it all along the walls and it, it works with any content any question any, content. any ad- brainstorming all of it you know I, mean? I did Protocol. it on back to
1: school night once and i was like i want parents yo let's do chalk talk write down any questions comments things you want me to be thinking about and interact yes it works everywhere,
2: everywhere. and it's like graffiti too. Post-it notes yeah yeah like <laughs> post-it notes are my jam you know you like pens i like post-it? Okay, post-it yes
1: notes. yes um, Marty is the is the post-it to my pen right all right
2: <laughs> the second one is a see, is a see think wonder
1: see which is, wonder
2: which is the visual of um, thinking protocol and so what you do is you have a piece of artwork or even just a, a little sentence or a paragraph and you ask students to realize. see to um look at it and then think about it and then ask any questions about it so it's hello very much we have a visitor
1: we have a visitor we, this is a family family podcast so like they can definitely say hello i i so i've done something like this but um but i didn't know there was a whole kind of method to it so see think wonder um and that's great for for anyone who's visual who gets a, a response from just looking at something and kind of imagining what it's all about um art i am so okay so for see think wonder i feel like kids are better at this than adults
2: um, well, the thing is, I like these protocols at all ages, and I do. Yeah. And so, even with, um, with you know, master's degree students, candidates, and teachers currently in the classroom and students, young children. It's just um, we love popular education technique, and so the think wonder is, is just a variation of that. So the challenge of think wonder is it's um, people want to be all over the place. So like I notice. And they want to make judgments from the very first call. Yes, they're protesting. Well, actually, I see someone holding a sign.
1: Yeah,
2: versus, so I, I see someone holding a sign. I think that they're protesting. I wonder what they're protesting about. So it has to be all connected.
1: Yeah, is man, I really could have used that. Like I because because with adults especially, I would find there was a need to explain it or say, "I know what this is," and not actually engage in. The
2: protocol all right protocol number three um can you tell me passionate about this i love it so um so um the third one would be any kind of tuning protocol so this is um project-based learning Mm -hmm. through and through so you so learning project-based learning the learning happens in the revision right so you get your hands dirty um, and you create something, and then you get feedback, right? So a tuning protocol is definitely a, a way to get some feedback. And there's so many different kinds of tuning protocols. Um, one that's a little bit more gracious, so maybe mommy, you want consent mommy, what before you receive like, critical feedback. Um,
1: <laughs> it's a podcast.
2: You you oh, it's a can. pen. Oh, this is coconut water. I have some
1: coconut water. Oh, coconut water. <laughs> it's very good for you. <laughs> She's all about it. I love it
2: yes um so this is my youngest um three years old Demishkali.
1: Um, and it's
2: it's funny because I just love that you said that this is a family friendly because like we're in education of course children are involved and
1: of course amazing yeah no nah, it's great I mean and, and you know when we have <laughs> we, we're all we all have our families we all have the people who love us and who love them and why why would we why would we kick them out of the space, right? Why would we edit them out? This is going in, by the way. Um, so you said any tutoring protocol. I the first time I did a tutoring protocol was with adults, and it was amazing. Like it, around lesson plans, assignments, projects. Um, the learning happens in revision. I love it. All right. So two more.
2: Oh, I would Yeah, it. Let's see. So the next one would be um, actually from my colleague in the anti-racist arts education task force in Seattle, and his name is uh, Christopher Mena. Um really awesome scholar different um, music educator yeah, yeah, yeah. created um identify, define and disrupt.
1: And so we is- identify, define, and disrupt. This is beautiful. Okay.
2: And so what that is is you have some words. So usually we've done this around words like culturally responsive and white supremacy culture, culturally sustaining. And so we ask folks to we share a definition, we source yeah. the definition, and then we ask them to identify, um, you know, and reflect, right, on how they perpetuate or disrupt this in their own learning mm. spaces. Um, and so that's where the disrupt comes in, right? So we're identifying, okay, this this exists, this is a system that exists, let's define it, and then we're going to take steps to reflect on disrupting
1: it. Wow that's a brand new one to me. And um, I will make sure I cite my sources um, when when I use it. That's a, that's an amazing protocol. All right, number five.
2: And the last one is uh, the QFT protocol. This is another project-based learning. Um, so okay. question formulation techniques. And so you can just Google search this and the beautiful protocol shows up. Um, but basically you're asking students when you're introducing a driving question, you're asking them to come up with some questions mm-hmm. To understand more about what they're going to be learning about.
1: Yeah. The question for me, for question formulation technique, QFT. Right. Yeah. Cool. Cool. There's so this is a great list. I would have added um, the Back from the Future protocol. I really like that one. I don't know if you're familiar with it. That one's one where you pretend you're at the end of the initiative and you and and you've seen it, you've seen how it plays out. And then you come back and you're like listen that was so successful because and it's this way of kind of building things um maribel gonzalez mari thank you so much for coming on to habitually disruptive those of you uh well nobody's seeing this video but uh we we've got mari's children up in the screen it's a beautiful thing it's so amazing um to just you get another layer of a person's identity in life when you get to see uh, their families and, and the people who are connected to them. So Mari, I really appreciate you coming and taking the time and talking to me today. Um, I, I, it's, this is amazing. So folks, um, how do people find your work, Mari? How do, how do people follow you? Where can they go to absorb just a little tiny bit of your brilliance?
2: Thank you so much for this opportunity and I'm so excited that my kids get to join in the All last episode. Right. Yes. Um, but you can find me on Instagram at Decolonize Instruction. So um And if you want to connect, i have a link um, to my website and I also have some books for children 8, 9, and 10 years old. Oh, that's right. We didn't talk about your
1: issues. books. Yeah. So there's definitely
2: ways to connect on on social media and I look forward to, to continuing our friendship and, and supporting your work
1: that I'm Thank you so much. All right, y'all. Hey, your, your mom is amazing. And thank you for letting me borrow her for these last minutes. And I hope y'all have a really fun afternoon. I hope you get to go and do something super fun. And um, I'm Hidar
0: Munoz. This is Habitually Disruptive. Thank you for listening to us today. Y'all have a wonderful week. Peace.